In the ground northeast of Ypres, a small Belgian village opens the way to a tranquil stream that runs across this flat Flanders landscape. Here, more than a century ago, was hell on earth. Here we discover the story of the missing, the story of medics who struggled to recover their wounded, and of officers who nearly disappeared into the mud. We're on foot in Flanders this week, and we've returned once more to the Ypres salient. The salient is a term we often use to describe that ground around the Belgian city of Ypres. What does it mean? Well, a salient is a curve in the line, and when you look at the maps of the battles around Ypres during those four years of war, they very often followed the contours of the ground, and following the second battle of Ypres, when poison gas was used for the first time, the line settled down for a two-year period of static trench warfare, and that's when the true salient, that curve in the line, a bulge, it probably would have been called a Battle of the Bulge in the Second World War, came round the city of Ypres with Ypres at its epicentre and followed those contours in this curve around the different villages and the ridges from the Pilkelm Ridge in the north down across the Frasenberg and the Bellawada Ridge over Observatory Ridge and then curved around to the high ground close to Hill 62 and eventually Hill 60 and the beginning of the Messines Ridge. There were 12 sectors, defined sectors of this Ypres salient during that two-year period of static warfare from the summer of 1915 after the end of Second Ypres to the summer of 1917 in the approach to the Third Battle of Ypres, Third Ypres. And each of those was named after uh, a village or a location close by. And where we are this week is in the village of Wiltje, or Wiltje as the troops called it. In Dutch that means wheel, and I wonder whether it has a connection to maybe a wheelwright that once operated in this village in days of old. But in the periods during this two-year static trench warfare that took place around Ypres, Wiltje was one of the sectors, those 12 sectors, which British troops occupied. And they divided the ground up like this to make holding the positions around Ypres more sustainable. Because if you allocated men to specific sectors, you could then allocate resources to those sectors more effectively and keep the men in the line, feed them, supply them, get them the food and the ammunition and the bombs and the trench mortars and everything else that they needed and keep them holding the line until the next big battle. And here at Ypres, it was a two-year gap between the big battle of 1915 and then the next big battle in 1917. And so what happened here then was a, a series of small engagements here and there, but generally just static warfare, day-to-day -day trench warfare, with no big attacks, very often men not even firing their weapons, with conditions on the ground going from a freezing cold Flanders winter to a red-hot summer period, with a big movement of units in and around these 12 sectors, and in many cases, divisions, battalions, fresh from training in Britain, getting some of their first experience of trench warfare in these so-called quiet sectors before they went off to take part in a major battle, which in between 2nd Ypres and 3rd Ypres was generally the fighting on the Somme, in 1916. That was the area of the Western Front that occupied the British in that key year. 
But although this was supposedly all quiet on the Western Front here, men were killed and wounded and went sick every single day a battalion was in the line here. And in those colder months, then obviously there were more cases of sickness than there were from combat or engagement in any shape or form with the enemy. And that engagement would be not necessarily seeing the enemy, but receiving shell fire from him, or trench mortars, or rifle grenades, or sniper fire, or random machine gun fire. There would be times when men would be required to go out into no man's land to repair the wire in front of their trenches, or go on patrols, or even raid the enemy positions. The Germans would do that as well. We heard in a recent podcast at Plug Street about Max Seller, the German officer who was killed in the British trenches at Plug Street when his Bavarian infantry unit raided the uh, British trenches uh, just east of Plug Street Wood. And those sort of trench raids by both sides to harass each other, gain intelligence information by capturing prisoners or intelligence documents, or even identifying a unit that was opposite you, by taking back a cap badge or a shoulder title, or in the case of the Germans, one of their the shoulder straps on their uniforms that gave an indication as to what German regiment they were a part of. And if you think that uh, on any given day during a quiet period like this along the whole British front, at least 2,000 soldiers could become casualties, then as Ypres formed such an important part of the British line for, for most of those four years of the war, then easily a 1,000 men a day could become casualties in this ground around the city of Ypres, killed, wounded and missing. So not all dead, but the cemeteries in these areas do testify to the casualties sustained just by holding the line. Men killed not in the great battles of the First World War, but just by holding a trench in an obscure corner of Flanders. So here we are in the village of Wiltgee, just northeast of Ypres. It's on a road that comes out of Ypres, heading out towards the northeastern sector of the battlefields around the city. And this village in 1914 was behind our lines. In the first Battle of Ypres, British troops were fighting just up the road near to Zonnebeek, holding the Germans back in, in that crucial stage when really the positions around Ypres were formed. It remained behind our lines until the second Battle of Ypres, when the gas attacks and the German assaults gradually pushed us back from those positions and Wiltshire became a front-line village for the next two years until the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917. And where we're starting here in the village is in front of a tall column, a memorial, which commemorates the men from the 50th Northumbrian Division. So who were the 50th Division? Who were the Northumbrian Division? Well, they were a, a territorial army, territorial force as it was at that time, division formed pre-war from northeastern regiments, so regiments like the Northumberland Fusiliers, the Durham Light Infantry, the Yorkshire Regiment, the Green Howards and the East Yorkshire Regiment, who probably as a whole division had never actually formed up together, but within their individual brigades made up of county regiments like the Northumberland Fusiliers or the Green Howards had done training exercises, annual camps before the war. When the war broke out, they took on some new recruits, they expanded the size of their their battalions and then did their final bit of training before coming across to France in April of 1915. Now as incredible as it may sound, this division went into action. All these battalions, nearly 20,000 men, were thrown straight into a battle 
in many cases really only after hours after arriving on the Western Front. So there was not a period where they brought these men over, put them into the trenches, acclimatised them to conditions on the battlefields, they got used to the sound of shell fire, rifle fire, machine gun fire, everything else. There was none of that. They literally came off the boat, marched up to the front, and then went straight into action with no battle experience, no preparation for what was about to happen. This was a moment in the history of the Great War in which gas was being poison gas, was being used for the first time. These men did not have any gas masks except the Mark I gas mask, which was peeing onto your hanky and holding that up to your face or using a sock for the same purposes. But there was not even preparation for that. They were thrown straight into the fight and given pretty basic orders, really, which was to hold the ground, don't give up the ground, stop the Germans from getting into Ypres. Now, I've mentioned a few times on the podcast how with territorial divisions, they often have a very good old comrades association after the war. And the 50th Northumbrian Division was no exception to that. And there often is a connection between the strength of these old comrades groups, the erection of a memorial like the one we're standing in front of now, and the publication of a divisional history telling the tales of what that formation had done in the Great War. And again, there's a very good divisional history for the 50th Division. And this is the quotes from Chapter 3, their first experiences on the Western Front, describing that moment in which they come across to the battlefields of the Western Front. No one who was serving with the original Northumbrian Division when it landed in France in April 1915 and survived the long years of the war will ever forget the extraordinary happenings which took place during the Division's first month on active service. For a newly arrived unit to be thrust into the battle and take part in heavy fighting within a few days and in some instances within a few hours of disembarkation from England was no ordinary thing. But such was the lot of these territorials. The usual procedure after a division had arrived in France or Flanders was for all units to concentrate in a selected area for the purpose of undergoing additional training before moving forward to within marching distance of the front line. Infantry battalions of the division were then attached to troops holding the trenches for final instruction in trench warfare, while the gunners were usually attached to the artillery of a division holding a front-line sector in order to learn the liaison work with the infantry, such matters as ranging on targets and general routine on active service. With the arrival of the last unit of his division at Castle, 2nd Northumbrian Field Ambulance on the 22nd of April 1915, the General Officer Commanding was no doubt looking forward to a short period of hard training behind the line when late that night at 10.40pm news reached him of a German advance and attack on the front Langemark to Bickshooter. Ten minutes later he was ordered to have six companies of the York and Durham brigades fully equipped, ready to move by motor bus. This order was supplemented by another received at 11.29pm to have all units standing by in billets, ready to turn out immediately, fully equipped. So for those territorial soldiers, some of whom had enlisted before the war, others joined on the outbreak, and after nine months or so training in Britain, here they were on active service, expecting to prepare themselves when all of a sudden the balloon went up 
and they were clambering aboard old bill buses, that's the motor buses referred to in the divisional account, and then heading up to the shattered city of Ypres. It was springtime, and the weather was generally quite good. No doubt the chiffchaffs were singing in the trees, and the bushes and the plants around them were coming into bloom, reminding some of them, no doubt, of spring days back home in the northeast in peacetime. But here they were marching ever forwards to the front line, and over the course of the next few weeks, they suffered over 5,200 casualties holding this ground between the village of Wiltje and St Julian, just a little bit further up. The positions they held were just slit trenches, really, many of them probably not even properly connected up. And one by one these fell, and one by one the battalions of the 50th Northumbrian Division collapsed under the weight of this German advance and were eventually relieved and moved back. The division had played a a key part in the battle here. Its 5,200 casualties amounted to about 10% of the total casualties for the entire battle that the British Army had suffered here. And for territorial battalions recruited in specific locations, the first six Northumberland Fusiliers, for example, were recruited in Newcastle, and others like the 1st 5th Yorkshire Regiment, the Greenhowers, were recruited in the wolds of Yorkshire, east of York, across those many little villages that link the wolds with the coastal area in places like Filey, Flamborough and Bridlington. These were local battalions, and we often associate local battalions just with the POWs battalions, the volunteers of the First World War. But as I've said a few times on this podcast, The territorials were the original POWs. They were recruited locally amongst specific places with men who had lived and worked alongside each other, big families all drawn into these units. So when they were thrown into fights like this and the casualties were heavy, it began to place a heavy burden, a terrible burden on these localities. So following this battle here in April and May of 1915, the places where the Northumbrian Division had recruited were full of the talk of local casualties and the local newspapers full of the lists of the losses that had been sustained here. This was the 50th Northumbrian Division's first action of the Great War, so when it came to commemorate their efforts in the entire conflict, they chose this ground because this had such a devastating effect on the originals of that division. And while it took part in some later key battles like the capture of the ground around Martampuy and near High Wood in the Battle of the Somme or in fighting near Polkapel in the Third Battle of Ypres, and in 1918 it was struck three times by the German offensives of that spring, including action on the Schemendet Arm in May of 1918, this was the place where they chose to remember it all because of that significant moment when untried troops were thrown straight into the battle. I often ask myself when I stand here, did these men really stand a chance under these conditions? Did so many die unnecessarily because they didn't really know what they were doing? When you read the account of the individual units, they held their ground. They were inexperienced soldiers compared to the regular soldiers that they were fighting alongside in this battle. But they gave a good account of themselves as territorial soldiers and they held their positions. But in many cases... The Germans were attacking in overwhelming numbers, the gas was still being used, and the positions were eventually overwhelmed. 
one of the sad aspects when you begin to analyse the individual actions within the division in the ground between where we're standing here at Wiltshire and the flat open fields on the rising ground around St Julian, you see so few of those men killed in that period have a known grave. In some battalions, everyone killed in action was missing, has no known grave and is commemorated on the Menin Gate. So there's not cemeteries that you can go to to see the graves of these territorial men. They're mostly listed on the panels of the Menin Gate Memorial in Ypres. That second Battle of Ypres period of the fighting here in Flanders was a really costly one with some terrible days when some battalions had three or four hundred men killed in action in a single day and not one of them with a known grave, all of them commemorated on the Menin Gate. And so it must be one of those battles fought around Ypres during the Great War which has one of the highest proportions of missing soldiers for any of the engagements that took place here during all four years of the First World War. So from the memorial we'll walk through the village. Once you could have walked along the same road that the men of this division marched into battle near St Julian in April of 1915, but a motorway was built across Wiltshire in the 1970s and so that road is now blocked and you have to go round a corner under the motorway bridge and then rounds and rejoin that old road and that's what we'll do now as we head out to the sites on the other side of the village which became part of the German front line following the fighting here in 1915 and that'll be our next stop. Emerging from underneath the motorway bridge, we follow a road round to our right, which is Roselarstraat, and down and to the left, past some modern houses, we come to a bit of pasture land on the right-hand side, where in it we can see several German bunkers from the First World War. Following the end of the Second Battle of Ypres, and both sides beginning to build up their battlefield infrastructure, and both sides realising that this was about to become a quiet sector, particularly in 1916 with the Germans making their attacks at Verdun and British and Commonwealth forces fighting down on the Somme, the Germans began to invest in concrete structures here that year. Everything from concrete observation towers to infantry shelters to signalling posts, positions that protected German field guns and trench mortars to machine gun bunkers to headquarters bunkers and even concrete tunnel systems in one or two places. They ranged in size from small bunkers built into a frontline position to quite sizable bunkers that were built on the battlefield, some of which survive today. Some German bunkers were destroyed after the war, and indeed some British bunkers were as well. There was an effort to try and clear them up, but the cost in trying to demolish one of these structures made out of this strong concrete that was used at the time meant that it was costly and eventually that was abandoned. And what we see here is a, a mixture of, of infantry shelters and machine gun positions that were part of the German second line defences in this area facing the village of Wiltshire. Now when we talk about a machine gun bunker we tend to think of a big concrete block with a slit in it and a machine gun firing through it, a bit like the, the very large concrete machine gun bunkers that we would see in Tynecott Cemetery for example. But this type of bunker that's here didn't have that, didn't have an aperture in it. The machine gun team that was inside 
had a concrete firing step that they could set the gun up on. So they'd come up out of their shelter, the bunker would protect them, and if the enemy, British, French, Commonwealth forces were, were advancing on them, they'd get their machine gun up out of the safety of the bunker, mount it onto the concrete parapet of the bunker where the firing step position was, and fire from the top. And being slightly elevated like that, of course, they'd have a better field of fire. And you see this type of bunker quite a lot in Flanders. More commonly, though, just across the border on the Forgotten Front from Armentiers down to the Basse Canal area where there's something like 2,500 German concrete structures from the First World War. You see a lot of that type there. So these bunkers were built for the defence of this position and were used in action on the 31st of July 1917 when the men of the 55th West Lanx Division, another territorial division, that attacks across this ground and captured this ground in the opening stage of the Third Battle of Ypres in 1917, or what is commonly referred to as the Battle of Passchendaele. This ground was captured, these bunkers were overrun. Bunkers could be quite a formidable defensive position, but by 1917, with the greater cooperation between infantry, engineers and artillery, and the use of aerial photography to identify bunkers like this and heavy guns to try and smash them up and then Royal Field Artillery 18-pounder guns firing onto them to neutralise them, to allow the infantry to attack them without suffering casualties and then capture the ground. In many respects, static positions like this, big concrete bunkers, became a bit redundant and the battles that year to a degree demonstrated this. So you see a decline in the construction of this type of defensive concrete bunker being built in 1918. When you look at structures built that year, very often it's more about communications, so signals and command bunkers and positions built close to artillery batteries. The ground on which these bunkers sit saw fighting again in April of 1918 when the Germans attacked during what we call the Battle of the Lease and swept up this ground in an effort to push forward to eat once more but were stopped on the very outskirts of the city. This was all retaken and once again became part of the German defences around Ypres. It was recaptured in the fourth and final Battle of Ypres in September of 1918 when in this area Belgian troops were used. We tend to forget a bit about the role of the Belgian army in that final Battle of Ypres and they were very important in the capture of some of the key locations that we connect with the British and Commonwealth story from here right up to the village of Passchendaele. And it's important to remember their sacrifice in that final stage of the fighting in Flanders. After the First World War, the bunkers that had not been destroyed became tourist attractions. People came here and saw these concrete edifices and thought, what is that? You know, how did that fit into the story of the war? The veterans in return, of course, knew, but many of the parties that came here in that interwar period were parents, wives or children of soldiers who died. And although their loved one may have mentioned a pillbox in passing, they weren't probably really sure what that was all about or what it was and were fascinated by these things. And there are quite a few photographs of these particular bunkers being visited by battlefield touring parties during that period. As I guess it was on the road leading up towards Passchendaele and probably eventually Tynecott Cemetery, perhaps a route used by battlefield tour companies at that time, that could be the reason why they were so frequented. 
But interestingly, after the fall of Belgium in the summer of 1940, with the invasion of uh, Belgium and the Low Countries and France by Nazi Germany and Hitler's troops stamping their way all over Europe, German soldiers who were based here in Flanders and around the city of Ypres began to do their own battlefield tours. The, the Führer, Adolf Hitler, had visited Langemark and Messines in June of 1940 after the fall of these places to come and see the locations where he'd fought. And many of these occupying German soldiers then went on to do the same thing, not to visit places connected so much to them. Perhaps these names, though, were distant memories of what their own fathers might have talked about who would have been veterans of the Great War in the German army. But the number of Germans who visited locations, British cemeteries, memorials, and then bunkers like this, is quite staggering during this period. And again, there are photographs of a different type of tourist a German occupying tourists who came to these bunkers and saw them in 1940. So we'll continue down the road a little way now, along Roselaar Straat, and just up ahead on the right-hand side is a memorial set in its own bit of ground with a wall around it and a gate, and we'll open that gate and go on in. This is not an official memorial in the same way that the big tall column, the obelisk of the 50th Northumbrian Division memorial was, this is a private memorial to an individual soldier, but commemorating an action and the casualties within his battalion as well. It was built to commemorate 2nd Lieutenant Henry Anthony Birrell Anthony of the 1st Battalion Monmouthshire Regiment, who was killed here on the 8th of May 1915. Now his battalion on that day took a heavy toll of losses, Henry Birrell Anthony was one of 13 officers and 382 men of the 1st Battalion, the Monmouthshire Regiment, who became casualties on that fateful day of the 8th of May 1915. At one point their battalion was almost surrounded and the Germans called on them to surrender. But one of the officers stood up and said, Surrender be damned! And the unit held its ground, even if that was at such a terrible cost. All of the men killed in the fighting here were commemorated on the many gates, and that included 2nd Lieutenant Birrell Anthony. His parents had no grave to see, no place to visit. His father was a Lieutenant Colonel in the 2nd 1st Battalion of the Monmouthshire Regiment, and he visited Flanders during the war and was able to ascertain where his son had died, and as soon as the conflict was over, he bought the land close to where his son had fallen and decided to erect this private memorial. Now, he was not alone in doing that. There are many cases of this in the post-war period, and many of them, like 2nd Lieutenant Beryl Anthony, are soldiers who were missing, because at that stage, the construction of the big memorials, like the Menin Gate, like the Luz Memorial, the Arras Memorial, and Thiepval on the Somme, that had not yet been discussed. There was no clue, really, as to what or even how the missing soldiers would be commemorated. So families with status and money and privilege stepped in and decided to take control of the situation and erect memorials like this one. Henry Anthony Birrell Anthony was from Tame in Oxfordshire originally, but he was educated at the Cathedral School in Cardiff, and that's where his connection to a Welsh regiment, in this case the Monmouthshire Regiment, uh, began. And although his father purchased the ground and built this memorial, to commemorate his son and the life of his son and the sacrifice of his son, 
he decided to make it a wider monument to not just him, but to all the others who had fallen in that action. And as such, the regiment took on the responsibility of the memorial and it is now maintained by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. Now that's unusual in the case of these private memorials. In some cases, families gave money so that they could be invested and from that investment, the money would then be used to maintain the memorial. Others gave specific amounts of money to the then Imperial Wargraves Commission for them to maintain it on their behalf indefinitely. But others didn't bother. So across the Western Front today, while we stand here and see this is a memorial in very, very good condition, maintained by the Commonwealth Wargraves Commission, there are others that have fallen into disrepair and are quite simply crumbling away and that's a sad state of affairs it's not the role of the commission the commonwealth war graves commission to take on more monuments but it should be the role of someone to look into these memorials and make sure they don't crumble to dust because that would be a tragedy memorials like this i think further explain the grief associated with missing soldiers how do you cope with a soldier who doesn't have a known grave how do you commemorate him and some families did it by erecting memorials in churches and on buildings in Britain, and others came here to the old front line and chose their corner of a foreign field to remember that soldier, that son, that father, that brother, whatever it was. So when we stand here and look out across these vast open fields beyond Wiltshire up towards St Julian and across this part of the battlefield, we're seeing ground that saw some of the bitterest fighting during the Second Battle of Ypres in May of 1915. But as with many fields at Ypres, you can pick a field and almost every four years of the war is represented in the history of events that took place there. So this was ground captured just like the bunkers we've seen in the advance of the 31st of July 1917, in this case by the 55th West Lanx Division. Now one of the units in that division who captured this ground and advanced beyond it was the 1st 10th Battalion of the King's Liverpool Regiment, the Liverpool Scottish, and their medical officer was Captain Noel Chavas VC, MC. He'd been serving as their medical officer since the outbreak of the war. He'd been awarded the Military Cross, the MC, for bravery at Hoog in 1915, and the Victoria Cross in the fighting between Troneswood and Guimont on the Somme, in the summer of 1916. He'd been offered a position at a casualty clearing station or possibly even a field hospital to get him out of the trenches but he didn't want to leave his boys, his battalion behind and he remained with them. And just up ahead of us to the left hand side of the road there's a farm set back from the road. The farm buildings at the time of the war were much closer to the road itself and Chavas took over a cellar in that farm building as his regimental aid post in the advance of the battalion, indeed several battalions from that division across this ground. When you read the accounts of the 31st of July 1917, you often hear how, as the day came to an end, it began to rain, heavy rain, and it got heavier and heavier as the days progressed. The Third Battle of Ypres was mired, really, in those terrible conditions, with the battlefield turning into a quagmire. But in that early stage, it wasn't so much mud, it was that the rain was falling on the battlefields and flooding trenches and flooding shell holes. And in those shell holes, in this ground here, B 
between where we are and the Steenbeek River closer to St Julian ahead of us, Chavas knew that the shell holes would be full of wounded soldiers. When a soldier was hit, he'd crawl into cover, which on battlefields like this were shell craters. Now, some of these men were partially or even completely incapacitated by their wounds, and Chavas knew that it would be difficult for them to crawl out of the shell hole without some help. And as they were rapidly filling up with water, he knew there was a chance that many of the wounded could drown. So he went out tirelessly with his medical team, his stretcher bearers, to try and find the wounded and recover them and bring them back for treatment. But this was dangerous work. It was work that Chavas had done on many occasions, from Hoog to the Somme and indeed beyond that. But gradually, like so many soldiers sadly, his luck was running out and he was wounded several times going out on these battlefields here to recover the wounded until one shell blast caught him and he had to be taken back to a casualty clearing station behind the line. The doctor had become the patient and he was carried off the field on a stretcher back to a position at Branturk where he died of his wounds. For his bravery in these operations in the opening moments of the Third Battle of Ypres, he was posthumously awarded a bar to the Victoria Cross, one of only three men in the history of that award to be awarded the Victoria Cross twice, two of them medical officers. So while there's no memorial to Chavas here, and I don't think there should be, incidentally, it's ground that we can connect to his story, connect to that grave in Brenturk Cemetery, and those final moments of his service here, saving lives, going out tirelessly to save lives on this battlefield. We'll continue down the road now, and a little bit further up, just set back from the road, is a military cemetery, and that'll be our next stop. We're now on the path leading up to Bridge House Cemetery. It's quite a small battlefield cemetery. We can see it just ahead of us with some farm buildings behind. And those buildings replaced the original structures that were here that were marked on the British trench maps as Bridge House. And you'll notice as we take the path to go up to the cemetery, we do go over what is effectively a little bridge to get there. This cemetery sits on the ground beyond Wiltshire, just ahead of it is the Steenbeek River and beyond that the battlefields of September 1917 leading up towards the ground surrounding Passchendaele and the Brunsinder Ridge. Unit after unit fought through that ground in that stage of the Third Battle of Ypres including the men of the 59th North Midland Division. This is another territorial formation and they chose this bit of ground here slightly away from their battle area not quite on a reverse slope, but certainly far enough back for you to use the rubble of a building here, probably with cellars underneath it, as a point in which you could evacuate your wounded. So what we've got here, just as with the farm down the road where Chavas was, and, and there's a bit of a theme developing here of stretcher-bearer stories, this was a regimental aid post, and the point at which the stretcher-bearers from the battalion the ones that went out. So these are infantry soldiers acting as stretcher bearers who had gone out to pick up the wounded amidst the shell holes and on the battlefields and hanging on the wire and bringing them back to be then be handed over to men of the Royal Army Medical Corps from a field ambulance to be taken back to a main dressing station or 
an advanced dressing station for further treatment and assessment of their wounds before they were moved further back to a casualty clearing station, for example. And when you look at the different points in that medical evacuation chain, from the regimental aid post to the dressing station to the casualty clearing station, as good as our medical arrangements were, and they were very good, probably amongst the best, men die of their wounds. Some wounds are so serious that the soldier hasn't a chance of survival. Stretcher bearers brought men in, but some died on the stretcher as they were bringing them in. Others died on arrival at the regimental aid post because the, nothing that the medical officer could do to save them. And so what that means is that at every site of a medical post, whether aid post, dressing station or CCS, there will always be graves, there will always be burials because men die of their wounds. And you see medical establishment cemeteries at different points on the battlefield. Now this one, Bridge House, is unusual in that, that it survives because most of the smaller cemeteries at Ypres were closed after the war and moved into bigger ones. There are only 45 burials here, of which four are unidentified, so the majority are, are identified soldiers. They all fell between the 26th and the 28th of September 1917, and they're all men except five of them from units within the 59th Division. I call this the Stretcher Bearers Cemetery, and it's unusual in that it reflects that part of the history of these battlefields, because there are eight Royal Army Medical Corps men buried in here, which is about a, a fifth of the total dead. So these were medics from field ambulances coming up to pick up the wounded from the Stretcher Bearers and take them back. And there are infantry soldiers buried in here who may well, and I know of at least one case of one who definitely is a regimental stretcher bearer. So there are some men who were casualties brought in by the stretcher bearers, about to be handed over to the medics, but who died of their wounds because their wounds were so serious. And then the casualty rate amongst these battlefield medics was incredibly high, like Chavas wasn't just the medical officers but the men who supported him the regimental stretcher bearers going out there amidst shot and shell they could easily become casualties as well and there are examples in cemeteries on the western front where you have two stretcher bearers buried either side of the patient they were bringing in when they took a direct hit and all three were killed so the losses amongst these stretcher bearers and amongst the medics as well who were coming right up to the battlefield like this were incredibly high the R one of the RAMC nicknames is Runaway Mother's Coming, but when you look at the number of RAMC graves that are found in battlefield cemeteries like this, you realise that they had a perilous task and suffered as a consequence of the task they were expected to perform on battlefields like this. So this is a true comrade cemetery. It reflects a particular battle a multitude of units within a bigger formation, the 59th North Midland Division, but men who served alongside each other, fought alongside each other, and in this case died alongside each other as well. And it is unusual in Ypres, a small cemetery like this, reflecting a moment in time, and in this case, probably unknown to the people that made the cemetery permanent. I can't believe it was a decision behind making it permanent. It reflects this role of casualty evacuation on the battlefield. So Bridge House Cemetery with its little bridge as you go in, 
That's its official name. For me, it will always be the Stretcher Bearers Cemetery, remembering those stretcher bearers and one that I like to come to every time I come to this part of the battlefields. So we'll return to the road, we'll turn right, we'll continue a little way, and just ahead of us we can see a road bridge across the river here. This is the Steambeak River. But we're going to take a left turn to follow a road that runs parallel to the river with the river on the right-hand side. We'll walk about halfway up towards the village of St Julian, which we can see in the distance, and then we'll stop and survey this ground. Because about halfway up we get quite a good view of the river running through these fields and we'll stop here. Where we're standing now is overlooking the Steambeak River, sometimes called the Steambeck on maps. Beak is a, a Flemish word meaning stream and this was the name of a stream that ran through the village of St Julian and through various other parts of this sector of the battlefield. Although fighting took place around the river, around the stream, in the Second Battle of Ypres of 1915, it didn't really feature so much in the fighting, but in 1917, with the Third Battle of Ypres, troops reached this ground in the early phase of the battle on the 31st of July and the first few days of August of 1917, and then on the 16th of August 1917, there was the crossing of the Steambeak River, the attack across this ground. Now by that stage there had been over two weeks of heavy rain. Pitter-patter rain but also the rain of shells, huge bombardments that had smashed this ground and it had shattered the Steambeak, the banks of it. And the river, which we can see now, is, is we could probably leap across it. I shan't be trying that out in a hurry, incidentally. But in August 1917 this was much much wider, a much, much bigger obstacle because the river was overflowing with the rainfall and flooding the entire ground around it. So when we look at some of the photographs from this period, the steam beak is two or three times as wide as it is now because of the flooded positions around where the river was. The water ran out of the river, into trenches, into shell holes, creating this water-filled swamp area that men had to try and advance through. Now one of my favourite memoirs of the Great War is Some Desperate Glory by Campion Vaughan. He was an officer in the Royal Warwickshire Regiment and thanks to the incredible historian John Terrain, his account of the war was published in the 1970s. It's a book that's been reprinted and I'll put a link to it on the Old Frontline website, oldfrontline.co.uk. And he was here with his men of the Royal Warwick's Territorials of the 48th South Midland Division crossing this ground on the 16th of August 1917. And this is his account of that. Duly I hoisted myself out of the mud and gave the signal to advance, which was answered by every man rising and stepping unhesitantly into the barrage. The effect was so striking that I felt no more that awful dread of the shell fire but followed them calmly into the crashing, spitting hell until we were surrounded by bursting shells and singing fragments, while above us a stream of bullets added their whining to the general pandemonium. The men were wonderful, and it was astounding that although no one ran or ducked, whilst many were blown over by shells bursting at our very feet, no one was touched until we were through the thickest part of the barrage and making for the little ridge in front. 
Then I saw fellows drop lifeless, while others began to stagger and limp. The fragments were getting us, and in front was a belt of wire. At this moment I felt my feet sink, and though I struggled to get on, I was dragged down to the waist in sticky clay. The others passed on, not noticing my plight, until by yelling and firing my revolver into the air, I attracted the attention of Sergeant Gunn, who returned and dragged me out. I caught up the troops who were passing through a gap in the wire, and I was following Corporal Breeze when a shell burst at his feet. As I was blown backwards, I saw him thrown into the air to land at my feet, a crumpled heap of torn flesh. Sick with horror, I scrambled over him and stumbled down into the cutting, which was the Steenbeek stream. Crouched in here, we found the Irish rifles, and we lined up with them. There was a padre who gave me a cheery grin, and further along a major smoking a pipe as he sat on the bank with his back to the enemy. I climbed out of the stream and saluted him, noticing out of the corner of my eye that a tank was ditching in the cutting. When you read that account, it sounds like absolute carnage, and I guess it was. When you think of an officer going forward with his men and being sucked down into the glutinous Flanders mud, and the only way he could attract their attention in all the din of battle was to fire his revolver so they'd come back and drag him out before he was completely sucked under. I mean, how that didn't cause nightmares for years to come, one can only but imagine, quite likely, it did. So the steam beat was this flooded mess of a battlefield in which unit after unit attempted to cross, and cross in places they did, and the fighting moved on. And when you see the images of how the Steenbeck looked, you can't imagine how anything got across that ground. But it did, including tanks, including guns, and including the mules and donkeys that carried all the gear up to help the fight continue. Serving alongside Campion Vaughan's Raw Warwick's of that 48th South Millen Division was the Pioneer Battalion, which was the 1st 5th Battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment, the Sink Ports Battalion. They had fought as an infantry unit in the attack on the Albers Ridge on the 9th of May 1915 and suffered tremendous losses and not long afterwards converted to a pioneer battalion and became the pioneers of this 48th South Midland Division. A pioneer infantry battalion was there to carry out pioneer and engineering works on the battlefield alongside the infantry units within the division during attacks like this and that would be for example, to go forward with Bangalore torpedoes and cut a lane in the wire. So the lane in the German wire that Campion Vaughan talks about in his account may well have been one created by a company of the St. Ports Battalion who were attached to this part of the battlefield. And they also formed a scouts section as part of the work they did within this division. It was called Langham Scouts, named after Captain Langham, who was their commander. His father was Colonel Langham, who'd commanded the regiment at Albers Ridge and seen his men take such heavy casualties in the fighting there in May of 1915. He'd gone back to England and was now in a reserve battalion, but his son was still here serving with the sink ports on the battlefields. And he was sadly killed by shell fire on the 16th of August 1917 in crossing this ground. His body was taken back for burial at Vlamertinger Cemetery, but most of the men from his unit who died and many of the soldiers 
in the infantry battalions that they were supporting who fell in this action do not have a known grave. You can imagine with the conditions that prevailed here, it was almost impossible to recover and certainly bury the dead. And this was a date, the 16th of August 1917, which sees the transition of the commemoration of the missing, post-war of course, from the Menin Gate to the Tyne Cot Memorial. And you do see some men commemorated on the Menin Gate who were killed that day and some commemorated on the Tyne Cot Memorial. So Colonel Langham, having had to deal with the loss of so many of his men on the battlefields of 1915, was now faced with the loss of his own son. And during my research into those Sussex lads way back in the 80s and 90s, I traced a veteran of the 1st 5th Battalion of the Royal Sussex Regiment who, when I asked him what this battle was like, he simply replied, Hell on Earth. So with thoughts of that, we'll continue along the road running parallel to the Steambeak, come into the outskirts of the village of St Julian, where we'll see a British cemetery on the right-hand side, and that'll be our next stop. The village of St Julian, where we are now, featured so heavily in, in several of the battles of the Great War here in Flanders that it deserves its own podcast, and we will come back here in due course, hopefully when we can actually return to this ground to do it some justice. But where we are now on this western side of the village, where this cemetery, St Julian Dressing Station Cemetery, is located, again, we're following that theme, really, in this walk, which is the medical facilities and places connected to them because this was the site of another medical facility on the battlefields in this case not a regimental aid post as we saw with Chavas's farm and bridge house cemetery this was an advanced dressing station largely used by the royal naval division during the third battle of Ypres in 1917 the cemetery was started in september of 1917 not long after this ground had been captured in the advance and it was used until March 1918, and the following month the Germans broke through here in the Battle of the Lease, and this ground was captured, and the cemetery took quite a lot of damage then. Originally there were 203 burials in the original plots of the cemetery, and some graves were so badly damaged they were eventually replaced by special memorials. And then post-war, it was decided to make this a permanent cemetery, and the cemetery was then expanded by the inclusion of burials from the surrounding area of St Julian and along the Steenbeck River, including graves that were recovered during the post-war clearances that took place in this area. So in total, there are 428 burials, of which 180 are unidentified. So it's quite a high number of unknowns, but I would guess in the original plots of those original 203 burials, probably most of those are identified soldiers. Now what we see amongst the burials, though, are quite a large number of gunners. There are 58 gunners out of the 428 burials here. Why is that? Why are there so many artillerymen? Well, again, as the line moved forward, as the attacks took German positions and the front moved on, the guns had to follow up behind because no unit on the ground, no infantry unit on the battlefield was any good really or of any use without artillery to support it, support it in an attack and support it when it took a position and it had to be defended against German counter-attacks. So as the infantry moved on, the guns had to follow behind 
And again, just like the RAMC were nicknamed Rob All My Comrades or Runaway Mother's Coming, the gunners were often referred to as thousand-mile snipers, as if they had some safe position miles behind the line so they could just lob off their shells and go home for tea. When you come to cemeteries like this and you see so many gunners buried here, you realise that their casualties were heavy because when the guns moved up, particularly in an open and exposed landscape which this would have been in 1917, the Germans were always searching for those gun positions to destroy them. And in some cases they found them and the guns were hit and the gunners were killed and wounded. In addition to that, artillery, because it was behind the actual front line, had to send men forward in forward observation teams to spot for the guns. And in doing that, they suffered heavy casualties as well. So to serve in the Royal Field Artillery and even the Royal Garrison Artillery with the heavier guns was not any kind of safe job in the First World War, really. There was no safe job. But coming back to the Royal Naval Division graves, when we look around that, we'll see the anchor symbol of the Royal Naval Division on the headstones of the men from the Royal Naval Volunteer Reserve. We'll see the Globe and Laurel from Royal Marines here. But there, by this stage, by 1917 in the history of the Royal Naval Division, there were British Army Infantry Battalions in the division. So we can see Mars and Minerva, the cap badge of the artist rifles amongst several of the headstones here, and they were part of the Royal Naval Division. Now in October 1917, they were attacking the ground just northwest of the village of Passchendaele, near to Varlet Farm, for example. And the casualties suffered there were evacuated back to safer locations for treatment because again this vast open landscape with no cover it was difficult to evacuate the wounded and also time consuming and the nearest dressing station from the front line area around Violet Farm was here at St Julian several miles away which was a much greater distance than normally would be required for the placement of a medical facility like this and no doubt sadly contributed to the fatalities, the men who died of their wounds as a consequence of having been brought back so far. By the end of the Third Battle of Ypres, it was estimated that it could take 18 and a half hours to cross the smashed ground between the front line near Passchendaele and the outskirts of the city of Ypres. Now that's 18 and a half hours for a soldier with his kit marching back or marching up, but it also meant a considerable amount of time like that, probably more than that, for stretcher bearers to take wounded back under those circumstances and what they tried to do with dressing stations like this there was no choice but to evacuate them on stretcher being carried from the battlefield area to here but then they would lay corduroy roads and railway sleeper roads built by the labour corps across the swamp across the smashed ground across the shell holes and that would enable horse-drawn or even motorised ambulances to take the wounded back to the next main medical facility, the casualty clearing station in and around Ypres. The medical units in the Royal Naval Division were not comprised of men from the Royal Army Medical Corps. They were Royal Marines. It was a Royal Marine medical unit, so a unique aspect of the infrastructure of this particular division. And we see quite a few of them in here. They, they have a deal prefix. Deal in Kent was the training ground of these men from the Royal Marine Medical Unit. It was the depot, Royal Marine Depot, that they used. And when we look at the men in here with that deal prefix, we're looking at the men who comprise the field ambulances within the Royal Naval Division. So again, it gives us an insight 
into the losses sustained by medical personnel treating the wounded on battlefields like these. Tucked away slightly separately from the others is the grave of a First World War pilot, Lieutenant Cecil Dutton Darlington. He was serving with the 204th Squadron Royal Air Force and was shot down in this sector on the 15th of August 1918. The Royal Air Force had been formed on the 1st of April 1918 by combining the Royal Flying Corps, part of the Army, with the Royal Naval Air Service, part of the Navy, and creating this new flying service, the Royal Air Force. Darlington had been born in Lancashire originally, but his family had emigrated to Canada before the Great War, but he seems to have returned at the beginning of the war, served first in the artillery and then commissioned as a pilot. He was shot down piloting a Sopwith Camel over this battlefield in between the Battle of the Least that had taken place here in April and then the final fourth Battle of Ypres in September-October of 1918. What interests me is not so much the fact that he was a pilot, um, although that is an interesting aspect of the, of the Great War, which we must look at at some point in the podcast. It's the inscription on his grave, and the inscriptions on these graves, they do fascinate me. And on this one, it has the line, One clear call for me. One clear call for me. And this is part of Tennyson's Crossing the Bar. Sunset, an evening star, and one clear call for me. It's funny how just a few simple words written long before the Great War can transport us somehow back to a splash of white stone in Flanders. Whenever I read that, whenever I've heard it recited on the radio, I'm taken back to that grave here at St Julian, back to these criss-cross paths of the Great War, back to the old front line. You've been listening to an episode of The Old Front Line with me, military historian Paul Reed. You can follow me on Twitter at Somcor. You can follow the podcast at Old Frontline Pod. Check out the website at oldfrontline.co.uk where you'll find lots of podcast extras and photographs and links to books that are mentioned in the podcast. And if you feel like supporting us, you can go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash oldfrontline, or support us on Buy Me A Coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash oldfrontline. Links to all of these are on our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.